pray. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, we just thank you. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide us and leave us. Lord, always remind us that you do love us. No matter what we think about ourselves, you love us and that you care for us. And help us always to remember that. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And remember, as we go through this, Ecclesiastes is, I was just commenting the other day, this is a very hard book because Ecclesiastes is all about the same very dire message. Everything is bad, nothing is worth living. But he always ends, and we tell you this, at the last part of the book, in the last chapter, he's going to come up with the conclusion. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. We are to fear God and keep his commandments. And he comes back to God by the end of the book. And he hits little places where he kind of starts getting into it. But I always want to bring that, la that key verse in the last chapter out as we go through this long section of this, because this is more of him looking at the bad side of things. So Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such that were oppressed. And they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors there, there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead, more than those that are living which are yet to, which are yet to live. Yea, better is he that, than both which hath not yet been, who has not yet seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I consider the travail and, and every right work that is, that for this is man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. We're looking at this and we're seeing that he's continuing on this whole train of thought. And he starts out with, I return to consider the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of those that were oppressed and they had no comforter on their and on their side of the oppressors was power but they had no comforter you know and we see this people take advantage of others all the time if they have power they take advantage of them and they think you know from, from the other side it looks like well they got everything they're getting what they want they're happy and you know we've got the person being oppressed they're sad and we, you know from the world's point of view we look at it and say yep one one is getting everything one is getting nothing Solomon says neither one of them are having comfort. Neither one of them are happy with where they're at. And you know, this is something that this whole book is really about, and I really want to press home to us. Without God, there is no happiness in anything that we do. We may look to the world that we're happy. You know, we, we see people who are trying to play the lottery to win their millions of dollars, you know. Uh, and they think, if I just get millions of dollars, I will be, I will be happy. I will get everything I want, and I, everything will be just fine. I'll, I'll give, you know, I get my hundreds of thousands and I'll give a million dollars to the church. No problem. Well, the problem is it is a lie anyway. If you're not giving to the church without the money, you're not giving to the church when you have money. So, but, you know, we look at this and how many people, if you read the stories, they win this million dollars and they go, I wish I had never gotten the money. It's made my life miserable. Because with that comes a lot of different other problems. We always will have problems that we're going to have to face. If you're poor, you have the problems of putting food on the table. If, you're, if you have the money, you've got the government with their hand out trying to take your money. You've got friends out trying to get, take the money. You've got uh, strangers out with their hands trying to take their money. And, you know, there's all this stuff. There's problems with everything. 
If you're just the worker, you, you're wishing you were the boss because the boss has nothing to do but watch you work. You get up to be the boss and you wish you were the employee because you've got so many responsibilities to keep the business running and keep the employees paid. You know, and it's, he's saying this, there is no comfort, you know, neither side. And he started with the obvious one. Those who are oppressed, they have no comforter. You know, and everybody's going, yeah, we have no comforter. And he's going, yeah, but even those who are doing the oppression aren't comforted. They've got other things that they're worried about. And they're worried about somebody taking advantage of them and, and taking away what they have and looking over their shoulders. You know, we tell, the, we tell a lot of the inmates at, at work sometimes, they go, well, you know, I don't need this education because I'm just going to go out and, and sell drugs again. I go, well, how'd that go the first time? How, how, long did, how many times have you been caught? You know, it's better to, have, to earn a decent living, a right living, and not have to be looking over your shoulder than to be worried every moment that you're going to be arrested. You may be have, living high on the hog with all the quirks and everything, and then you're in prison with nothing, and it's gone in a heartbeat. You know, and this is even in the business world. You'd be running the top of a business, you know, everything's going good. You know, you've got, you're on top of the world, and the next thing you know, your business is bankrupt and gone out of business because some new technology put you out of business. Or somebody did something that stole from you, and you're out of business. You know, and this is the problem. If our hope is, is under the sun, which is of this world, we're building a shifting sand. You, know, you may be on top of the world for a moment, but the next thing you know, you're, out, you know, you're gone. You're, you're the world's best singer. Everybody loves you. And all of a sudden, you end up with an injury to your throat, and you can't sing anymore. And after a couple, couple of years, nobody even knows your name. You know, we got a lot of people in this room that are old enough to remember singers. That if you were telling them to your grandkids, they'd look at you like, who? What? You know, what are you talking about? Never heard of them. You know, great when we were growing up, you know, well-known, popular singers, but now they're has-beens. You know, athletes who break records, you know, whatever sport they're in, they break a record. They're famous for a little while. Somebody eventually will break their record. And they'll be, who was that? Oh, yeah, that was the guy who used to own the record. <laughs> you know, if you know a lot about it or I don't even know who you're talking about. This is, for, this is the record holder now. You know, uh, and this is what he's saying. There's, even if you have the power, there's still no comfort in it. You, know, you get to be famous, there's no comfort in it. There's not, you start wondering, do people like me because I'm famous or do they like me for being me? You know, do they like me because I've got lots of money and they can get things from me or do they like me? You know, and you know, we look at this and this is the whole purpose of Ecclesiastes to say in the world there is nothing that brings comfort. And even further than that, there is nothing new under the sun that he keeps bringing up. And we sang the song, Ancient Words, and I love that song. But you know, the funny thing about it is when we study the Bible, if you take out these funny sounding names you could, and change them to modern names, you'd be reading the newspaper in most cases. You know, uh, you know if we just changed uh, Hezekiah to, to some other ruler, you know, we'd be, oh yeah, you know, under attack, no, you know, we can understand the very thing. And we look at this and it's just amazing. When I hear people say, well, how can you believe that old book, that out of date, old fashioned book? I'm going, you have never read the book. You have never read the Bible if you think it's old-fashioned and out of date. Because I can guarantee you everything that we deal with has happened and is in the scriptures in there. And so we look at this, and this is him saying, you know, people get oppressed and that's it. And then, then he gets really negative. He says, it's better to be dead than alive. <laughs> you know, and in one sense, I guess it might be true. You don't have to go through any trials or troubles. Uh, you know, remember last week he's talking about that when you're dead, you're dead. 
you know, without God, that is what he's saying. Who, who could know what happens after, after you die? And usually when you talk to somebody who doesn't believe in God, that's what they're saying. Well, who, how do you know that there's a life after death? You know, and we're talking a lot about that, but you know, for me, it's really simple. God's keeping his promises to me here in this world, and he's given me a good life that's been at peace and at rest. Not a perfect life, not one without any trials and tribulations, but he's given me peace and he's given me comfort. Because he's kept his word here, I know that he's going to keep his word in the future. And even if he doesn't, I haven't missed anything. I haven't been seeking and running around like a chicken with my head cut off, trying to find comfort and peace. You know, and this is so important. We all have either been there ourselves or know people that have been chasing that fulfillment in their life. And whether they fill it with drugs and alcohol or sex or work or family or fame and fortune, it doesn't matter what they try to fill it with. They always come to the place where they say, it wasn't enough. I'm there. I, I'm the head of my company. I, own, I, I'm the, I have lots of money. I can do whatever I want. And they're still not happy. I'm the most famous person in the world. Everybody knows my name. And they're still not happy. Because happiness is not found in the things under the sun. And this is what Solomon is bringing up. He says, and then he goes, and even, even better than being dead was to never have been born. You would have never had to go through anything. You know, we're talking about somebody who's in a very deep depression. Okay, hey, I wish I was dead because it's so bad, you know, nothing satisfying. And it would be even better if I'd never been born and gone through any of this in the first place. And I've heard people say that. It would have been better if I had never been born. Why? Because they're trying to find their fulfillment outside of God. You know, and the greatest thing is, and, and I hope that you've all experienced it, if not you know, most of the time, at least off and on, when God has filled your heart, there's a peace that passes understanding, we're told in Philippians. He gives us a peace that doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense when your whole life is falling apart around you to say, God, you're in control and you've got a good plan for me and I'm, and I'm not really happy about this, but I have a peace. And that peace is what is, is driving you. When you go through a hard time, if you're happy about the hard time, there's something else wrong with you. Okay? God doesn't tell us to be happy because of what happens to us. He tells us to be happy because he's in control and something good will come from it. Not, well, God, you, you, laid me out in, you laid me out for six months in this coma. I'm really happy that I'm in a coma. No, <laughs> I may be happy by what comes from that, but not because of it. You know, when we're in the midst of the pain, if you're telling me you're happy because of the pain, I'm going to send you to a psychologist to find out what's, pro what's wrong with you. Okay? If you're happy through the pain and saying God's got a plan, that's a different thing altogether. You know, Andre Crouch in the song, you know, through it all says, I've been, you know, that he's gone through all kinds of trials and tribulations. And he says at the end of it, you know, in that verse that he goes, I thank God for these because if I had never gone through them, I would have never known that you, that I have a God that can get me through it. You know, and this is what he tells us over and over. He takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. He takes us through the trials to show us his power, his strength. And we look at it and say, God, I don't understand this. But, you know, if we don't go through the trials and tribulations, we don't know the strength we have. We don't know what we believe until it's tested. And this is the thing I keep talking about. God, when you say, tell God, God, I really believe what you've said in the word, and you're getting to the place where you really believe it, expect the test. 
Expect the test that says, do you really believe? And the test will be equivalent to whatever level you are for believing. Okay? If you're a new Christian, your test is going to be pretty simple compared to the person who's been walking with God for four decades. Hopefully, if that four-decade person's taking the same test, that's a bad testimony on that, that four-decade person. It means that they haven't grown. <laughs> Their test should be harder. They should trust God more. If you read the different biographies of all these great leaders and you look at, you know, they get famous for some of the things they go through, but you look at them at the beginning of their life and how many times they flop on their face just like us. You know, and we go, man, I could never have gone through that. You're right, we could not go through it until we went through all the trusts that led up to that, that point. All right, God does that for us. When I say, God, I believe that you're forgiving. If it's my first time I believe in that he's forgiving, the act that I'm going to have to forgive is going to be something really simple. If I've been walking with him for four or five decades and I'm saying, God, I really believe that you're somebody that forgives, you're going to find somebody who really needs your forgiveness. <laughs> and it's going to be pretty tough, maybe, to forgive them. But in essence, it's just as tough as that first person was when you're living, just coming out of your flesh and not knowing what forgiveness is all about in the first place. But now you should be learning to forgive why do we love? Why do we forgive? Why do we give grace? Because God gives it to us. I find it easier and easier to give it because I know how much grace God has given to me. And the more we realize that God has given us forgiveness, the more we realize he's given us grace, the easier it should be for us to then say, okay, God, yes, they deserve it. But that's where it really comes to fruition. You know, this person needs grace. You know, and it's funny when you tell people that this person needs grace because you almost inevitably hear they don't deserve grace. Well, of course they don't deserve grace. <laughs> if they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. <laughs> okay? You know, we really as a people want grace in our own life. God, I want grace, grace, give me grace, give me grace, give me grace. How hard is it for us to give that grace back out to others? You know, that's our challenge as Christians is to be able to give grace back to others. Okay, God, I know that this person's mean, nasty, and hard to get along with, but I want to I wanna just teach me to give them grace. Help me give them grace because I'm probably just the same way from God's perspective. You know, and think about this. What does God see? If he was to see us, what would he see? Well, Isaiah says that our righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight. And that's what people will tell you. Well, I hope when I get to heaven, God will, that I've been good enough to go to heaven. I got news for them. I've even told them bluntly. I go, it's not good enough because when you stand before God, you're going to be standing in front of him with filthy rags on saying, let me come into heaven. And he's going to say to you, no. The only righteousness that's going to be acceptable to God is Jesus Christ's righteousness, which we are clothed in when we come to, come to him and say, God, forgive me my sins. I'm a sinner. I accept your gift. And he says, good. Takes off the old rags, puts on brand new righteousness of Christ. And when we stand before God, he says, oh, there's my son. Come on in. We need to really understand fulfillment comes through God. If we are trying to fulfill in any other way, we're without hope. And the sad thing I see with so many Christians is we get saved by grace. We know we're saved by grace. For by grace am I saved through, through faith, not of myself, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I go, all right, God, I'm here. I'm here because of your grace. And then what do we do? We try to live by works. Okay, God, you, you saved me by grace, but now I've got to work real hard to keep this thing. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't deserve it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work real hard just so that I deserve what you've given me. It does not work. 
If you want to live a miserable Christian life, try living on your own works to please God. It won't work. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. You know, don't take me wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to go out and serve. I'm not going to go out and share Christ. I'm not going to live a life. But I'm not doing it to try to please Him. I'm doing it because I love Him and He's living in me and He's coming out. And I've always said the Christian life is an easy thing to do as long as you let God crucify your flesh. You know, if you're striving and working and struggling, it's a miserable life. Because we fight our flesh all the time because our flesh does not like to be disciplined. Okay, you don't believe it, go think back on raising your kids. Your kids did not like being disciplined. They acted out every opportunity. If you weren't looking, they acted out. If you weren't watching, and we did the same thing to our parents, and we do the same thing to God. You know, somehow we think God's not looking. <laughs> it's like the kid eating the cookie with the chocolate, chocolate all over his face saying, no, I didn't eat the cookie. That you watched him eat in the first place and you see the evidence of. How many times do we do that with God? Well, I don't think God's looking, and I'm not going to admit that I've gone out and sinned. God says, repent, confess your sins, repent, and he will bring us back into fellowship. He just wants us to be honest. And this is what we're looking at. How do we live for God? Let him live through us. Let him crucify the flesh, because if we're trying to discipline our flesh, the flesh comes back with a vengeance. How many times have you heard somebody that gets into a 12-step program, they get victory over their, over their whatever they're in, anger, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it is they're in, they get victory over it. And they get victory maybe for a couple years. And then they fall off that wagon and the flesh comes back with a vengeance saying, yeah, you've had me caged long enough, you just wait, you just wait till I show you what, what I can be like now. Our flesh is not to be caged. Our flesh is not to be disciplined. Our flesh is to be crucified. Let God destroy it and put in a new heart into us. In the Old Testament, it says that he wants to put in a, take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. In Corinthians, he says he makes us a new creation. You know, he takes away this burden of our sin. He gives us desires in, our, in us to live for him as long as we read the word and we're fellowshipping with him. You want to live the wrong way? Don't read the word, don't fellowship with him, don't come to church and you'll be just like the rest of the world. You, you're saved, but you're not going to live in the peace. You're not going to live in the, the following of God. We need to be in his word. We need to be praying. We need to fellowship with one another. Because without it, and believe me, I hear it all the time, well, I can go out and worship. I don't have to come to church. I can be a Christian. I can worship in slip in the place you want to worship. You know, the hills, the lakes, the mountains, the snow, the, the islands, whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever, you know. And I'm going, yes, you can, but are you? And they might be the first couple times they do it. But after a while, no. You, you take that red hot coal out of the center of a fire and put it on the side, it will, it will die. And that's true for us as Christians. You may be a red-hot, fiery Christian when you're with the, with the body of Christ in the Word of God, but you step out of those and you'll, you will die. You will die. It is just what happens. We need each other. That's why we're put into a body. That's why Paul spoke so often about you. Be in the body. And, you know, does that mean you're going to like everybody in the body of Christ? No. There's going to be somebody in that group that's going to irritate you. But you know, we're still to love them because they have a place. 
Every single person that's in the body of Christ has a place in the body, whether you like them or not, whether they irritate you or not, there's a place for them. There's something that they can do that you would not be able to do. There's a people they might be able to reach that you cannot be able to talk to. You know, I really appreciate the people that can walk right down the middle of a, of a gang-infested street and go witness to the gang members with no problem. I've been there, done that. It, it's a little scary to me, but I know people that just go down there like, hey, hey, how are you doing? And, you know, it's like, we need, but then other people look at, well, that person, they don't even dress, you know, because they dress the part, you know, they, they dress the way they're supposed to. And people look at them, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. They're the most godly person you know if you want to just spend some time getting to know them. We need to learn to love each other for who we are in Christ. How boring would this world be if every single person was just like you? You know, I've thought about that at times. If everybody was in the, in the church just like me, I'd have a whole lot of teachers in the church and not a whole lot of people out in the audience listening because all of me would be wanting to teach. You know, and how many people wouldn't be reached because of the way that I present the gospel compared to the way other people present the gospel. And you can, I'm using myself as that example, but think about it. If everybody was just like you, what would the church be like? You know, what would the church be like if everybody was just like you? For some people, it would be, well, we'd have a church full of people sitting in the pew with nobody up front singing or or teaching. You know, uh, some people go, well, the church would have lots of money because I give lots of money. I think, boy, the church wouldn't be long very long because I don't give any money. If everybody was just like me, we wouldn't be, be around long. You know, and I'm not trying to criticize anybody, but we need every single person with every single gift that they have. Even if they irritate you, we need that person in the church because there's something they're bringing to the body that's needed. And we want to keep that in mind that we need each other. Fulfillment is in this whole area. Then he gets on, and I really wanted to key in on this one. I considered again all travail. And the word for travail here means all the bad aspects of work. Okay? We've all probably had that job that we hated. We were there only because it got a paycheck at the end of the week, and we hated going there. Sometimes our job we love gets to that point. (laughs) And, you know, we want to consider this. Work is not the curse of sin. Adam and Eve were created to work. Okay, they were created to tend the garden, to do work. The curse came when it says that the land is not going to produce for you the way it used to. So work is not the curse, but here he's saying, I considered the, the work, the travail, and every right work and the proper work, the work that's fun. I've been very fortunate in my life. Most of my jobs I've enjoyed doing. I look forward to going to work. It's harder to get me to come home from work because I enjoy what I'm doing. And I've been very fortunate in my life to have those kind of jobs. But that's real work. You know, that is what God says is real work. He says, I considered both of this and that for this a man is envied all by his neighbor. This also is vanity and vexation. Envy. Envy is that hatred towards somebody's blessings that they're getting. It's worse than coveting. You know, coveting is I want what you have. I don't really hate you for having it, but I want what you have. Envy literally is what drives many people to do so much wrong, to sabotage somebody's job. You know, I am really angry that you're getting blessed and and getting all these benefits. You know, you shouldn't have all that money. I should have it. You shouldn't have that promotion. I should have it. 
And the word for envy in its definition says it's that hatred, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's just supposed uh, superiority or actual superiority. And we envy that person. You know, most of what drives the flesh is that envy. I am going to get what I deserve because you don't deserve it. You know, and I said, you know, we were told you shall not covet. And coveting is bad enough. And covet is part of envying. I want something somebody else wants, but I want it so bad that I'm going to make sure that they don't deserve it and I'm going to take, take it from them. And that is what coveting actually usually boils down to. If we're not very careful, it boils down to, I'm going to take this. It's mine. I, I deserve it. Whether I deserve it or not is irrelevant. If God gave it to them, God gave it to them. Even if they took it. <laughs> It's up to God to correct that situation. You know, we're told in the Bible that as Christians, we're to build one another up. We're to edify one another. And that goes against the flesh. The flesh wants to go, you know, you, you, why, why do you get all the benefit? You're the one doing all the solos. You're the, you're the one that gets to teach. You're the one that gets to do all these things. You're so special. And they get that bitterness toward people. And that is when all kinds of really bad things can happen in a body of Christ, when people are talking in envy and bitterness and strife. You know, what happens when we start building one another up? That is an atmosphere people are not used to. They see that building up, hey, I really like what you did, you know, that was really wonderful. You know, and we need to be looking for things that we can build somebody up for. For every single one of us and everybody we look at, there's at least one thing in their life you can be, you know, talk something good about them. You know, well, you know, I really like the fact that you come to church every week. You know, even if I don't like your singing or don't like, you know, don't like anything else, I really like the way you, you know, but we don't, we don't have to say anything else. We just say, I really like that you come to church every week. I really like that you're faithful in helping out in whatever ministry. You know, you, know, you might have a great smile, whatever it might be. You know, just you know, be looking for what we can build people up with. And if you start looking for the things to build people up with, you're going to find them. And you know what? You're going to find a lot more of them as you start learning to build people up and look for the positives. And this isn't positive thinking or anything. It's just God saying we're to edify and build up. One of the greatest things that separates the true church of Christ is that we lift each other up and we, and we have a good time being around. I love being with God's people. I really do. The Spirit of God flows. There's edification in most cases. And you know, the greatest thing is if you travel, you go to another church, it's a good body of Christ following God, it's the same thing. Building one another up, loving each other. And you know, the strange thing oftentimes is the same message. <laughs> you know, maybe from a different pastor, different words, but the Holy Spirit crosses over. And it's so funny because if you listen to a lot of Christian radio, it's so funny because they'll all be talking about the same topic all week long. You know, and I'm sure what they do is they get together and call each other, hey, yeah, what, what topic are you covering this week? <laughs> now, I know that's not what they do. It's just the Holy Spirit putting in the right conversation, going out to the people, you know, talking about it. Because God's Spirit unifies the whole church. Now, does that mean every single church is going to have the same message? No, but a lot of times there's the same. It would be funny when I talk to my oldest son. He goes, what did you preach about? I talked about this. He goes, my pastor talked about the same thing. Oh, that's good. He talked to another person. But, you know, and find out the, the Holy Spirit had unified the message to the church. And we look at this, envy will destroy a church. Envy will destroy a business. Envy will destroy a, fr a friendship. When you're jealous and trying to destroy somebody who has something you think you deserve more than they do, it'll destroy 
anything it touches. We need to be careful in the church not to get a spirit of envy flowing because there's plenty of work to do in a church. <laughs> you know, I've, I've told people that many times in the past. They go, well, I think I can do what you're doing better. I'm going to find it's yours. I'll go do something else. Convince the church that you should be doing it and I will go do something else. Why? Because there's lots of things to be done in a church. There's no end of needs of, of service to the church. That's why I, I'm never worried about people doing things because there's you know, plenty to do. There's always something that has to be done for the body of Christ to build it up and to work. And we need to be able to look at each other and say, I am so glad that you're doing that. You know, can you have enough teachers in a church? Probably not. You know, we could have something going on every night of the week if we had enough teachers that were good teachers to do things either in the church or at home. Okay, I've done many Bible studies on my own outside of churches, you know, just because somebody wanted a Bible study at home and we'd teach five or six people at home. There's plenty of work. Service work, there's never, never out of things that need, need help with service. You know, people go to the hospital and come home and need, need food and taken care of. You know, those are things that can be done. You know, ministering out to people. You know, how do we minister to people? Find somebody with a need and, and fill that need. You know, we watched the movie Jonathan Spear, The Secrets of Jonathan Spear, and all he did was reach out to these kids that needed to know the Bible better. And, and the movie changed their life. You know, we're older. Do we have some skill that somebody needs? Do we, need, do we know how to be a father or a mother? To, and our, we've got all these families that don't know what it means to be a father or mother that need somebody just to come alongside them and help them. You know, maybe we know how to study the Word of God and we want to teach people how to study. We can do that on ourselves, though. You know, and I've shared this before. If you want to learn something about how to do something, find somebody who's good at it and go with them, you know, and work with them. If you know somebody, you want to learn to be a prayer warrior and you know somebody who's a good prayer warrior, you just say, can we pray together once a week? You know, or yeah, I want to learn how to study the Word better. Can, you, can we sit together and study once a week or once a month? You want to learn how to witness, to witness to people. Go find somebody who's good at witnessing and go out with them a couple of times and say, I just want you to show, I just want to watch you and see how you do this. You know, one of the most amazing events I ever had is when I went to lunch with a real evangelist, not an evangelist in, by name. We went out to lunch and the line was a little bit long, so he started witnessing to everybody in line. Just, I mean, if I had done what he had done, I would have sounded obnoxious, but it was just so natural to him. And people listened to him. We got sat down, and he, while we're waiting for the waiting, he's talking to the people on both sides, all, all four sides of us. You know, he did not stop sharing the gospel, and he did it so naturally and so well that he was not obnoxious. You know, and it just flowed from him. It was a gift that he had. And I'm going, all right, God, I need to spend more time with him. And this was a traveling one. I go, I need to spend more time with a guy like this. Okay. And I did spend time with him. I've gotten better at giving the gospel message, but never like that. That was a gift. He had a gift that was beyond anything I've ever seen. But you know, is there something in the church that you want, some gift from God that you want? Pray for it. Find somebody who's using that gift and spend time with them. Even if it's only once a month, spend time with them. Get to learn what, they're, what they know. Because the greatest privilege I have has been watching people in this church grow. I love watching some of these lives, some of your lives that have just blossomed out, you know, so much and, and watching what God is using you for in each area. You know, evangelism, service, prayer, all the different things that we have going on because people are growing. 
And I get to just, I get the easy part, I get to teach it. <laughs> I get to teach it, maybe example, example in some places, but I get to watch the Holy Spirit change you. What changes us? Ultimately, it's the Word of God. It's His Word that changes us. It's His Word coming in and changing who we are. The Holy Spirit living in us, changing us. And we become whatever He wants us to be. You know, and that's the wonderful thing. You watch people and you go, Well, God, I never thought that person would be you know, this expert in that area. And I've seen it over and over in, in my lifetime. You put somebody in, in a Sunday school class and you just, Well, I hope they're a good fill-in. And all of a sudden, they just blossom in that position and, and they become the best Sunday school teacher you've ever seen at whatever age it is they're doing. God, that person, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if they're you know, good enough to be the one to lead that service and you put them there and then all of a sudden, that whole area is a place you don't have to worry about anymore because it's taken care of because that person has taken hold of it and says, this is my job. You know, and this is important for us. We have so many needs in a church and everybody has a place. Everybody has a place in the church. If you're called to the church, you have a place. And if not, find the church you have a calling. But there's a thing to be done in every church and there's needs. When I was at the previous church, people would come up to me and they go, we really should have the ministry doing such and such. I'm going, that's a really good idea. I'll help you get it started. <laughs> they go, no, I think, I think you or pastor should be doing it. I go, neither one of us need any more work, but if God told you that it told this, you're the one that should be doing it. I'll help you get it started. I'll help you recruit, recruit people. I'll help you get it on the budget. I'll help you do all these things. But if God gives you a vision, it's your vision. Nobody's going to care for something more than you do if God gave it to you. Because if he's given it to you, you see something nobody else sees. I see things I'd love to have happen, and I'm praying that God will rise up the people to be able to do some of the things I would like to see done. Because even if I no longer worked at the prison, I probably wouldn't have to do most of what I'd like to see our church doing. But there are a number of things I would love to see our church doing to reach out to the community. I pray all the time, how can we touch the community more than we are, better than we are? Because you know, my fear right now is if this church disappeared, the community would hardly notice that it had disappeared because of you know, what goes on around. You know, I want to see us touching the community in ways that they know we're here. Yes, we give out food boxes, we give out you know, lots of training, we do, we do a number of things. And I'm sure we do more impact than sometimes I'm aware of because I know that that's true of God. We always do more than we think. And I'm looking forward to the day when I get to heaven and God says, well, here's all the rewards for all the little things that you did. And I hope everyone else is out there is going to get that same reward. Little things that we don't even aware of. The kind word we just spoke to somebody that needed it at that moment. You know, we don't, we undervalue, undervalue it some, some of the events we have. You know, when we're raising kids, the parents always think about these big trips we did. We, we went to Disneyland. We went to the, you know, we went, we went to this place. We went to the rainforest up in Washington. And the kids, you know, they remember. Dad, I remember that you used to go out and play, play catch with me, you know, a couple times a week. And you went to my ball games. And you, you know, you made sure you went to my award ceremony. You know, we write those off as something that's not worth anything. And the kids tend to remember those events. They remember the big events sometimes, but sometimes they also remember the big event as, hey, it was just such a hassle. You were rushing us to get going. You were rushed us when we got there. You were rushing us around from point, you know, point to point. And, it was, you know, and they were miserable just as we usually are miserable on our big trips because we're trying to do so much. Now, I tell my, 
I, my sons, when they come out here, they, they tell me all that they want to do. And I go, you need four weeks to do everything you want. You're only going to be here for five days. You know, uh, well, I'm going to get everything in and you're not going to enjoy any of it. You know, we tend to do that with God as well. God, what is the big thing I can do for your kingdom? You know, God, I want to be Billy Graham. I want to preach to millions and millions of people. Well, I've got news for you. Billy Graham used to preach to tents with hardly anybody in there when he first started. You know, he didn't have to have an itinerary planned out for, for years in advance. He just showed up wherever he could set up his tents and preach to whatever small crowd he could get there. And then he got his name started to be known, and he started preaching to bigger and bigger groups. But he started out small. And the scriptures tell us, despise not the day of small beginnings. Don't look at something and say, well, this is beneath me. I can't do that. I don't care how, how far along you are. If God gives you something small to do, go do it. Do the small things. You know, nothing is beneath us. We need to do it because that is where everything is involved. And we need to be in this place where we're looking at God and saying, God, help me to build up others. Help me to be looking at others more than I look at myself. Jesus served others. He wasn't always saying, you know, he was God. He could have said, I want you all right here. I want, I want everybody serving me. Get over here and serve me. He had, every, he had every right to do that. But he served the disciples. He trained the disciples. He showed them how to do what he was asking them to do. Little jobs. Little jobs. Sitting at a well talking to one woman who was obviously a prostitute because she came out in the middle of the heat of the day where you didn't come out and get water. And he talks to her. Now, we don't really understand that in our day and age what a big deal that was. Number one, she was a Samaritan. You don't, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Number two, a man wouldn't talk to a woman, a woman you know, that he didn't know wasn't family and definitely wouldn't have talked to the one with the reputation that she had because of when she was out at the well. And yet Jesus said, I care about this person. We need to be very careful that we don't look at others and say, well, you know, not, you're, when, when you get your life together, I'll talk to you about the gospel. The sad thing is, I see a lot of smiles on this face, you know, on, the, around the, on faces, but you know, how many times as Christians do we have that attitude? Well, you know, if you stop what you're doing, I will, I will talk to you. You know, when you're not drunk, when you're not high, when you're, when you're not stealing, when, when you're not on the run from the law, we'll talk. Jesus came down and met people where they were at. We need to be able to understand God's grace. You know, it's a whole lot easier to talk to somebody who's in the middle of their sin than it is to talk to somebody who's somewhat good. Jesus' biggest problem was with the scribes and the Pharisees. We would have called them good. They didn't steal. They didn't lie directly. <laughs> uh, you know, they were pretty good guys. You would have looked at them and said, hey, these guys are really nice guys. They're, they're not too bad to be around. But they were the ones that said, we don't need, a, we don't need you. We don't need a Savior. We're going to get to heaven on our own works. You try talking to somebody who's a good person, and they're hard, to, they're hard to reach with the gospel. You talk with somebody who knows that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you're going to see people getting saved. So don't write people off just because they're, they're too bad. <laughs> There's nobody who's too bad. And we want to keep that in mind. Solomon here is, is coming to this idea, and he says it's better to have just a little bit and be happy than have everything and be at, be at odds with the world. 
Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us learn to be content with what you've given us in, in you, because in you we have everything. Lord, help us to see people the way you see them. Help us to treat people the way you treat us and pour it out on others. Lord, if there's anybody that needs you as their Savior that listens to this, we ask that they will admit that they're a sinner. And just say simply, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. Come into my life and, and save me. And then move out to talk to a Christian about it. Lord, we just thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.